Hey everybody, it's Andrew Wilcox. This is Wander with Andrew Wilcox, a podcast about the crazy wild ideas we think about sometimes that eventually end up turning into the things that change our world, I guess is the way to look at it. Um, today on the show, I've got Alexa with me. Alexa Toulette is the Associate Professor at the Department of Psychology at the uh, University of Alabama. Yeah, so she's originally from Canada, originally from uh, Ontario, from Toronto, uh, but now she is uh, living in Alabama, and she's learned a lot from that experience and change in culture, uh, how much does change, how much doesn't, and she does some really cool research on confirmation bias. Yeah, the idea that uh, we might be a little bit biased in trying to achieve what we believe uh, and how that can affect uh, research and stuff like that. And she also uh, talks a lot about open-mindedness and how to be more open-minded. That's what the show is all about today. Alexa, super awesome to talk to, really interesting and uh, a really cool person. So let's get right to that. Here it is, my conversation with Alexa Toulette. Welcome to Wander with Andrew Wilcox. Alexa, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, well, I I grew up in Toronto, or at the time it was Scarborough, um, and now it's technically Toronto. Um, and I did all of my schooling sort of around there. And then when I was uh, 26, I finished my PhD in Toronto, and then I got a job at the University of Alabama. So I moved to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I have worked at the University of Alabama as a psychologist ever since. Wow. Um, was Alabama a place you ever thought you'd be, you'd go? Oh, yeah. I dreamt about moving to Alabama since I was a little kid. Is that sarcasm or no? Yeah, that is sarcasm. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. But I, I know, know. I'd, uh, I do like Alabama quite a bit, although I, I did never imagine myself living here. That's yeah. true. Um, what, where, where did your passion for social psychology come from? Uh, that's probably a question that I don't really know the true answer to. Um, I do remember being in, uh, in university and I took a lot of physiology classes and I always really liked that kind of stuff. But when it came to the point of, um, delaying having to get a real job by going to graduate school, most of the, uh, neuroscience programs focused on very narrow uh, questions and we're, you know, we're talking about like neurotransmitters and this kind of thing. Um, and, uh, I was in my last year of university, I took a social psychology of genocide class and I found myself wanting to talk all the time about the stuff that we talked about in that class and not so much about like my biochemistry class. Uh, so, um, that's what I ended up applying for when I went to graduate school. So I think probably, some things that are a coincidence and then also, um, yeah, well, I, I mean, I think I'm biased, but I think that everybody likes to think about what causes people to act the way that they do. And that's basically mm -hmm. what I spend time thinking about all the time. So, well, it's funny that you say that because even I is like, I went into radio, uh, I've got a one step above clown college diploma in radio broadcasting. <laughs> um, but my thought process behind going into radio broadcasting was being able to talk to people and get to know and understand why the individual thinks the way that they do. 
yeah, because through broadcasting, you get that opportunity. So I think it's a similar thought process at the beginning, but it's mm -hmm. interesting in the way that the past that we all, uh, we all, uh, take, what is the goal of your research that you're doing now or the goal of the research that you'd like to do? Um, right now. So I guess within the past few years, my research has come to focus more on, um, the, the things that allow people to be open-minded or I guess the more pessimistic way to look at it is the things that, um, cause us to be closed-minded. Um, and increasingly I'm interested in the practice of social psychology as a field. Um, and so lately my, my research focuses on the combination of those two things. Um, so, Social psychology as any science, um, our goal is to be a self-correcting field um, and a field that is sort of like moving forward in terms of the knowledge that we have about the way people act the way that they do. Um, but there are things that uh, limit our open-mindedness as researchers and also institutional things that limit our scientific progress as a field. And so these days, my maybe my goal is to help improve the self-corrective capacity of social psychology, I'll say. So in, in a similar way to how an individual player can tank a team by wanting to be the star or a rock star can tank a band by taking up all the limelight, a single scientist can partially tank uh, a research by wanting to be right more than wanting to be what's right. Um, I would agree with the, I would agree with that, that an, a single scientist can tank things, but I think it's a more of a, a community effect. Like I think all scientists are, they have the incentive to, um, publish and to, to maintain their careers and to be successful. Um, and the way that the incentives in our field currently work, these, these incentives are often at odds with the incentive to be truly open-minded. Um, so even when people have very good intentions and their goal is to be open-minded, um, they're not always rewarded for open-minded behavior. So there are these institutional challenges as well. This might seem a little off topic, but then would you not say that that's an issue that is rising in a lot of areas as people get worried about their own well-being and their own financial well-being, that they're willing to accept things that uh, to be not, they're, they're willing to accept things that are not open-minded in order to make sure they secure their own well-being. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So I think, um, I think, yeah, even more sort of like maybe out of left field than what you said. I think we are often in situations where pragmatic concerns compete with our underlying values. Um, and, you know, you, it's nice to prioritize our, values as much as possible but you know there are also um you you can't ask people to ignore their their own pragmatic concerns like whether or not they have a job or you know whether they or not they succeed within their job people will always care about those things for good reason well it seems like that that uh conflict is at the core of so many things that we're seeing in our world today mm-hmm uh, you know, when it comes to politics, some people willing to completely forego all of their um, moral 
what they would see as morally uh, reprehensible just in order to maintain financial uh, solubility or the belief that they're getting financial solubility or also completely willing to forego their religious beliefs, which are supposed to be of the highest regard uh, in order to maintain economic success. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I recognize those parallels as well. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think that it is, I, this is a sort of a trite thing to say. I think Mm -hmm. it's sort of easy to um, articulate our values in abstract terms, but it's often very hard to put them into practice Mm -hmm. and also even to recognize the situations in which it would be appropriate to put them into practice. So I think if, if every one of us had like a little like signal that went off in our brain when there was like something that, you know, we were doing something that violated our values, maybe we would be better at it. But sometimes it's like, um, not something that we are even, we're even recognizing. But so you mentioned politics and I think many people are used to, uh, sort of paying attention to biases in the realm of race or in the realm of gender. Um, we've become sort of like, I think as a society, well-versed in discussing those kinds of biases. Um, but so a person might be uh, pretty capable of catching themselves when they um, when they exhibit those kinds of biases, but not used to catching themselves when they exhibit, say, an anti-conservative bias or an anti-liberal bias. Um, that's I think that's becoming increasingly um, something that's discussed, but historically it hasn't been as much. Yeah, and, and I think that we, uh, I think also in Canada, we like to kind of think that we don't have that problem sometimes, uh-huh, but it's yeah. definitely very apparent up here, uh, almost as much as I think it is in America. I mean, you would have a, a better perspective on that, having been in Canada and the States. Do you see a difference there between the two? Um, I would say, so I think that um, the U.S., simply because of the, like the two-party system, it, that system lends itself more to like a sort of an in-group, out-group polarization mm-hmm. types of problems. Um, but I think, yeah, I think the interesting things come up when you compare the U.S. and Canada as well. Like so, for instance, when I was growing up in Canada, there was – this is sort of like relevant to my life, but there was a really strong stigma against um, – the southern U.S. in particular, mm-hmm. um, and that was sort of like an allowable form of prejudice. Whereas there were there, are, I think, I think Canadians maybe pride themselves on not being very prejudiced, and there's many good reasons for that. And I grew up in Toronto, which is an extremely multicultural place to live, um, and I think people are very conscious of um, of of prejudice. And I think in in a way that kind of environment does reduce prejudice in very important ways. But there are still like you know, it's like you you focus on one thing and then another thing slips through the other side, right? And so, um, so prejudice against southern um, southern U.S. citizens, I think, was like sort of something that was allowed, almost under the um, under the excuse that like southerners are prejudiced, so it's okay to be <laughs> prejudiced against them or something like that, right? Yeah, it's 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 so always an interesting phenomenon to me. It's not to be. It's it's not okay to be intolerant unless you're intolerant of the intolerant, right? Essentially, right. that's where the line yes. is. So thus, we can, you know, we can make fun of everybody in the South. And I think, I, I, I think, 
uh, and this might not hit with everybody, but I think that uh, has happened uh, when it comes to Alberta as well. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, when, yeah. even, even in Canada itself, uh, I mean, many times I know Alberta, having lived inside and outside of Alberta, Alberta is looked at. I mean, we've called ourselves and we've had other people call Alberta the Texas of Canada. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, and the rednecks with the trucks in, in Canada. And then people make fun of the others. I make fun of Toronto on the other end as the people who are self-centered and only think of themselves as the center of the world, which is the, mm-hmm. is the sentiment over there. And I think sometimes in Canada, we also... Uh, like to think of ourselves as as uh, more inclusive than, uh, say, America, and a good right. portion of at least the middle of America. But then I think we also do have a lot of underlying issues when it comes to our Aboriginal people that sure. we like to ignore as yeah, well. Right. Um, right. And it seems to be a part of a human need to be to have somebody to point at that we're better than. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a sort of like a a very common motivation something that, that maybe is part of human nature to want to to see yourself in a positive light and one one sort of like cheap way of doing that is uh to compare yourself to other people in a way that makes you look better and that's, even if it's not necessarily accurate but is that do you think that might have something to do with the reason why politics has risen to such a us versus them, my sports team, the left versus your sports team, the right. Um, because we have had less of that sort of like our ability, you know, society's ability to kind of go, oh, those people across the ocean, they're so much different than us. We are a better democracy than they are. And now we, mm-hmm. we're starting to realize more and more that there isn't that much difference and that. Uh, you know, our democracy isn't always necessarily better than than across the pond. So now we're like, oh, well, who's the, who's the group that we can look at? Oh, well, now we can look at politics. That's something mm-hmm. we can look at that we know that, that you can't really get mad at me for that. I'm not racist if I don't like your politics, right? Mm-hmm. You think that that's yeah. developed because a lot of the other things have gone, like we've proven that wrong to think that way? Yeah, I see. So it's like a remaining domain in which it's like more permissible to have these like in-group out-group dynamics or like have like yeah i i do think that there is something about the way people think that sort of defaults to um comparison and Mm -hmm. maybe even competition um and so i think a big part of constructing our own identities comes from constructing that identity in uh, contrast to something else. Um, and that's something I think that again becomes sort of salient when you think about Canada and the U S um, I think because the U S is such a big country and because Canada and the U S are so closely tied, um, and physically close, the like Canadian identity is often constructed in contrast to the American identity. Um, and so I think it is a difficult challenge to try to, um, construct the identity of a society or the identity of an individual without having um, some kind of contrast. And then, yeah, the the simplest version of that contrast is to see yourself as on one team and see other people as on another team, whatever categorization system um, that might be. And I definitely agree with you. I think that's a really good point that there are some categorization systems 
um, that are sort of like out of fashion in terms of like allowable ways to compare yourself to other people. Um, but politics, I don't think has yet become one of those. Yeah. And I think that's, I think, I think people lean on it now more than they ever have because of that. Um, because they, they, they haven't been able to, to form their group. And also too, probably looking at it in a good way, it's that all of our, all of our cities and stuff have become more multicultural. Right. So, yeah. Uh, it's harder to form, I think, ra uh, racist biases for individuals because they've they've been thrown out the window by the people that the people have been able to meet. Uh, right. You know, I grew up in a community that was, when I was young, very white, and uh, mm -hmm. there was a lot of very racist. Uh, I, I hate I hate to use the term race. Very uh, ignorant people that just didn't have any understanding. Um, right. of other races and now it's very different my nieces and nephews now go to a school with very multicultural classes they think in very different ways when it comes to race just because of the way that that, that they've grown up um and i think so i think that's a positive so it, this might have developed out of out of um that option being taken away but it might also have just developed out of the fact that we we've grown people are growing up in a different way now and that just doesn't make sense to them to be racist, but they're still looking for identity and they're looking right. for the, the, the group to be a part of. And as you said, somebody to reflect that from. Uh -huh. And I think that there might be actually sort of valid reasons to think that um, it's more okay to have this kind of like uh, competitive dynamic along the lines of political orientation as opposed to mm -hmm. um, to things like yeah race or gender or things like that because um, theoretically people choose their political orientation right yeah. so you are free to adopt the political values that you want to adopt um, and so if somebody uh, chooses to criticize you for those values I think that's it does maybe deserve to be in a different category than um, than prejudice along these other dimensions that are, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, they're, they're not like chosen values. Yeah. So that brings me down to the big question, the reason I, I wanted to speak with you. How do we be open, more open-minded? Yeah, that's a, that's a question I think about a lot and something that I think is very challenging. So um, maybe one of the first steps to being more open-minded is I think to recognize how challenging it is to be open-minded. So I think we, we quickly get into traps um, when we like take small steps or try to see things from a new perspective. And I think these things are good. Um, but then think that we've like solved a problem and now have become open-minded people. Um, there are things about the way I think that the human mind work that make it impossible to be completely open-minded in, in the sense of being willing to, to equally entertain any possibility. And that's fine, right? Like it's, it's totally reasonable that we're like more likely to entertain, you know, a uh, uh, sort of like a plausible explanation for why something happened than to entertain the possibility that like aliens did it, you know, um, there's, there are good reasons to, weigh different accounts differently and to not be equally open-minded to everything. Um, so, um, also the, you know, we have a tendency to sort of stick with the, whatever thing we, 
previously believed or believed first. And that's an extremely difficult tendency to overcome. Um, and again, sort of going back to what I was saying before about like, maybe if we had like a little signal that went off in our mind, you know, every time we were supposed to exercise open-mindedness, we might be better at it, but, but we don't, right? So you don't like have a sign that you don't have something that like notifies you when you are tending to look at, let's say more liberal news sources than more conservative news sources, or when you're sort of like identifying the flaws in a research study that conflicts with your previous views, but you are letting those same kinds of flaws slide in a research study that supports what you previously thought, right? So those are things that are going to happen that are that basically impossible to avoid and we're, we're not always going to detect them, right? Like a lot of these things are sort of going on in the deeper reaches of the mind, if you want to think about it that way. Um, so, but I don't think that that means that uh, the problem is totally intractable. And I think, yeah, I think one step towards becoming more open-minded is, is simply to become less sure of yourself. Um, so while I don't think that, you know, I, I don't think it's realistic and I don't think it's necessarily, um, desirable to be sort of equally open to all possibilities. Um, I do think that, um, things become problematic when we are overconfident in our views and, and in the political realm, I mean, to get a concrete answer to a question that's politically relevant is extremely difficult like you could work on one political problem for your entire life and not have like not be a hundred percent certain what the certain what the correct answer is right um so for instance like if you're i don't know curious about whether we should have the death penalty or not right you might have a moral stance on that and that might be sort of like an easy way to come to a quick answer to that question um but if you want to sort of weigh all of the pros and cons of having a death penalty like that is a massive, massive question. Um, and so it's, I guess, in in my personal experience, being somebody who uh, does empirical research on the way people behave, um, one thing that I think I've learned in the time that I've been trying to do this is that it's extremely difficult to come up with answers to these questions. Um, and so just to have a little bit of humility about how much we can really be sure of these things, I think might be a good step towards being more open-minded. And that, that humility is very warranted. Like, uh, yeah, I think, I think you'd be very hard pressed to, um, to come to like a conclusive answer that would persuade anyone in, in the domain of, of politics, for instance. Yeah. It's it becomes near impossible to, to change mm -hmm. a person's view on a lot of political stances, especially the big ones that do a lot of the dividing in most, uh, in, in most societies, you know, like it, it's, you can't right. to change a person's view on something like abortion is very tough to do. Uh, right. and that's a very, it's a very tough discussion to have too. So, <laughs> Yeah, that was very tough. And when you say like, we don't have an alarm that goes off and we're doing something against our moral values, we almost have the exact opposite in cognitive dissonance where it's stopping mm. us from being open-minded. We have a safeguard, safeguarding our own emotions and feelings uh, from you know feeling stupid and, and, and feeling wrong, 
right. so how do we how do we as a society um correct for that can we yeah again i mean i think the like the the seemingly simple answer is that we we could examine our own thoughts and stop ourselves from doing that and i think that's misguided um like like i was sort of saying before i think a lot of these things happen very automatically and mm -hmm. they're not they're not things that are apparent to us um but there might be behavioral things that um that cause us to be less likely to do these kinds of things and and one might be just exposing yourselves to uh a broader range of views um i think the best way to do that is to interact with a broad range of people you know um so i I mean, this can get tricky, but I think a lot of people don't like discussing politics, for instance, with people who have different political views than them. And sometimes there's very good reason for that. Like sometimes those conversations are really unpleasant. Mm -hmm. um, but if it's it, it can be very easy to surround yourself with people who have very similar views to you. Um, and I think I think that's a barrier to open mindedness. Um times when I think I've changed my mind on, on important issues are times when I've, yeah, become friends with people who have very different views than me. And, you know, like over time, seriously entertained the views that they have. Um, I don't think that's the thing that kind of thing that can happen really quickly. Like, you know, for instance, in, in the States, if you like, just read Fox news headlines once in a while. I mean, sometimes that's kind of thing can even backfire, right? If, it, if you're not like really engaging in good faith with this like alternative position that you're mm -hmm. exposing yourself to. And it, I mean, sometimes that can even make you sort of more entrenched in your original views. Um, but yeah, if there are ways where you can interact with people who you respect, who have different perspectives than you, um, I think that's one, one way to, to prevent yourself from sort of like staying in this bubble I had that echo chamber. I had that same, I had that exact experience you just described. I, in order to try to see all sides, I signed on to like Fox news, Twitter, just cause I was uh -huh. like, I think I'm, yeah. I'm, I think I'm not getting the whole story all the time. I'm going to put Fox news, Twitter on there too. So to kind of add a little bit of, uh, other views in there and it drove right. me crazy. I couldn't handle the headlines. That was the right. problem. The headlines yeah. to me, I'm just like, that's not true. I just straight uh -huh. up, not true. Nope. And it, you're, it's exactly what you're saying. It reinforced for me. I'm like, Nope, totally Fox news. Write it off. I, I try every once in a while to watch some of the clips just to sort of try to get the other side. Um, yeah. but I just find a lot of its aggressiveness really tough for me to watch. Mm -hmm. Uh, what's his name? My, the one guy, Shep, is that his name? The one guy I like, the one guy I, I, I can watch, but for most, like, I can't handle a Tucker Carlson clip, even if he was describing to me how cute a duck was. He'd uh -huh, probably yeah. do it in a way that was so aggravating to me, I couldn't even watch it. Right. Yeah. Um, but I see what you're saying, because I, th that's always my worry, is that I'm getting into the liberal silo. And, and that seems to be uh, what, you know, with social media the way it's designed in order to be convenient and comforting to us is it's creating that issue more than anything else so right. the question is do we do we change that do we do we have to change the way social media works is that even possible or are we at the whim of technology 
Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. And actually, it's something that you could imagine different kinds of algorithms for the way that, for instance, like Google decides to give you your news or Facebook decides to filter your feed or whatever that would expose us to more information that's uh, not so consistent, right? Mm-hmm. But I suppose that these algorithms are designed to send us the things that we most want to see. And those are the things that are most consistent with what we've seen before. Um, so I, I think that technology will s- continue to work against us in this way, unless we're really, really motivated in how we use it and sort of like very diligent to, to not become, become siloed. I think it's interesting. I, a little sort of experiment I've had a couple of times is when if you ever go to a work computer that's not yours and just hit the browser and it pops up the news stories and you sit mm-hmm. there and you go, who the heck would want to read this? Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, that's what the average, like, that's just the base of what people would look at because that mm-hmm. computer is not used by the same person all the time. But you go to your own even workstation, what it feeds to me it has learned to feed to me out of my years of working where I work that mm-hmm. there's, it is, we're in different worlds now. You just walk right. to a random computer and hit that screen. You're like, who reads this news? It's designed not, it's not designed for you. So it's not what you think it, it should be, but it's probably better for us to be seeing that more often. Mm-hmm. I think um, one thing that can be sort of interesting about the experience of of using social media that's tailored to our preferences is that you start to realize that you are a predictable kind of person. Mm-hmm. And almost all of us, I mean, we just, we fit into a demographic category that, yeah, things like Google um, and Facebook understand. Um, and they know what to market to us and what to send to us. And that also sort of suggests, I think that can be one way to arrive at maybe humility or open-mindedness is to recognize that that if you've become a totally predictable person then maybe you aren't totally thinking for yourself all the time right um so i think it's very easy to look at whatever the other side might be to you um and think that they're sort of views come in this like prepackaged homogenous form that they just sort of buy into. Um, and it's difficult to see ourselves that way, but it's often equally valid to mm-hmm. apply that to ourselves. Absolutely. It's just, you know, what we were exposed to as we grew up. I was right. very lucky to have an incredibly uh, open-minded, thoughtful and inclusive parents in a very yeah. small town uh, that helped a lot for me. I know that I recognize that. And I think, um, well, this is, what people I think, you know, this is what we all have to kind of, I mean, what you're, uh, you probably look at more than anybody would, how much of we have is free will and autonomy over who we are as an individual Yeah, is right. the big question. Yeah. And that was, to me, was the big eye opener and the understanding that, uh, you know, I'm not sure what the actual combo is, but there's a good part of it that's just not in our control of who we are. Right. Yeah, definitely. And we're much more willing to acknowledge that for other people than we are for ourselves, I mm-hmm. think. Um, so, yeah, we'll um, we'll sort of recognize those situ- situational influences on others. Um, 
but I think we tend to see ourselves as freer than other people are. But that was definitely something that I thought about moving from Toronto to um, Alabama. So like I said, I think growing up in Toronto, uh, Canadians and Torontonians sort of pride themselves on being unprejudiced. Um, and then moving to uh, Alabama and seeing like at the University of Alabama, seeing the sort of like the problems that arise when it comes to race. And there, you know, there were there have been a few scandals since I started mm-hmm. here. Uh, the sorority and the fraternity system are often sort of at the center of those scandals. Um, but uh, it becomes like it becomes easy to feel like you have some kind of moral superiority. But then you you think about, again, like how predictable your perspective on this would be as like as somebody from Toronto and from Canada. And it's just it's very simple to explain those differences in views by differences in environment um so so it sort of uh, puts a check on getting too high and mighty if you if if you're if the views that you're high and mighty about are the ones that everybody shared when you were growing up what do you think about um i don't know if this is the right term intellectual discrimination the uh thought of those who would consider themselves to be an intellectual or um, the the more educated over the 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 less educated, the less educated over the educated? Because um, sometimes I think that there is a bit of a um, a like people want to just di- discredit those that are educated because it doesn't fit their views. But then sometimes I feel there's that on the other end as well in that. Um, you're unwilling to listen to somebody if they're not educated, like educated people are sometimes unwilling to listen to somebody if they're not educated. How do we better balance that? I, um, yeah, I think that happens all the time. And, and my first, my first guess was that you were going to talk about discrimination from against less educated people. Mm -hmm. Um, and you noted the reverse direction first. Um, but I think sort of like going along with what I said earlier about um, sort of decreasing overconfidence as a way to become more open-minded. It's our society sort of, um, I think glorifies education as a way to um, get closer to being an expert on things or being right about things. Um, and I, so I think that it becomes, uh, easy for people who are well educated to sort of, um, argue that they have more claim to what is right or what is true. Um, and yeah, basically I think that's a load of BS. Like I think you, through the process of education, I don't think education is useless. Certainly, obviously I have spent a lot of time and money on education. Um, but it, it gives you a different framework to think about the world and it introduces all of its own biases as well. So I think education is just one other domain where people have different experiences and different biases and different perspectives. Um, and I'm not sure that they should be 
privileged in one direction or the other. I think to me, I th- when I think about it, I think to, uh, I always try, I, I always try to respect those that have spent more time thinking about working on and studying something than I mm-hmm. have. That right. doesn't necessarily that, that, mean they have to fair. be educated in something. You know, right. I, I can talk more about how a radio broadcast works than most. And right. that yeah, should be somewhat looked at, you know, okay, this person knows more about this than I do. Right. That to me is a bigger measurement than necessarily the person's education into something. Mm-hmm. But I do think that sometimes we, uh, we do have a bit of, I, I think, I, I worry that sometimes we've got a little too much into false equivalency on right. things. I think false equivalency mm-hmm. com- has come out now more than, than ever before on things because it's, it's, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what the solution for, for when, when to talk and when to listen. We, we have a lot of, um, we, we have had all of our lives, years and years and years of being told that we're, we are smart and beautiful and, uh, you know, think about you, you and you, and you are, uh, you know, a, a magical unicorn built from stardust and, um, and I think sometimes then we, we start to uh, lose the ability to listen as well as we hear. Would you say that that's accurate? Yeah, definitely. I mean, listening is much harder than it seems, I think. Um, and I think it is hard to, it might be impossible to not like privilege our own experiences and perspectives. Um, yeah, maybe the best that you can hope for is sort of, um, entertaining the perspectives of other people sort of like in as good faith as is possible. But is um, there... I think I have to, I have to run. Oh shoot. Okay. I'm sorry. No, no worries. Uh, well, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for speaking with us. Just one quick question. Anything that you would leave people with to read, listen to, or watch that you think would be of value to help be more open-minded? Read, listen to, or watch. Um, let's see. I don't know. Um, this is a this is not a specific thing. It's a general thing, but something something by someone who you think is smart, who has a different view than you. Fair enough. (laughs) Perfect. All right, Alexa, thank you very much for your time. Uh, Thanks for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Really. Thank you for the conversation. That was a lot of fun. Thanks so much. I had a great time. (laughs) Thanks.